Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. Well, it's a privilege, as it is every week, to come together and look into God's Word. And so I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Now, just as a reminder, over the last two weeks, we have seen Mark draw our attention to the mission of Jesus as the anointed Son of God. He came to earth in order to die, and he calls his disciples to take up their cross and follow him in suffering and death. And yet, we saw last week in this vision of the transfiguration that suffering and death do not undermine the promises of the Old Testament, promises of redemption and glory that would come through the Messiah. Rather, suffering is the path to the glory that God has foretold and promised. So that's what we've seen these last two weeks, but now we're coming to another episode in the life and ministry of Jesus, which shifts our focus a bit from the mission of Jesus to the disciples and the crowds and their response to Jesus. The spotlight, if you will, today is on the nature and the importance of faith in Jesus who comes. So if you would, Join me as we read Mark chapter 9. We're going to begin in verse 14 and read down through verse 29. This is God's Word. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. For he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whatever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can... All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw a crowd running, came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. 
And we pray that you would give us understanding as we come to your word this morning, and we pray that it would give us a greater understanding of Jesus, our Savior. And we pray it in his name. Amen. A little over 500 years ago, in 1515, Cardinal Giulio de Medici commissioned two paintings for the cathedral in Narbonne, France. One was of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ that we looked at last week. And the famous Renaissance painter Raphael was commissioned to paint this painting. The other was commissioned to a different painter. It was to be of Lazarus rising from the dead. However, Raphael was not making fast enough progress for De Medici, so De Medici secured Michelangelo's agreement to work on the other painting. Now, if you know anything about art history, Michelangelo and Raphael were fierce rivals, and Medici was hoping to spark that rivalry, and he succeeded. Raphael poured himself into the transfiguration, which turned out to be his last masterpiece, and was widely considered to be the most famous most beautiful, and most divine oil painting in the entire era. What was so striking about this painting? Well, in the painting, Raphael did something that no one had ever done before with the transfiguration. He combined the transfiguration and the dazzling glory of Jesus on the top of the painting with a dark blackness on the bottom of the painting framing this scene from our passage today. The disciples and the scribes arguing and debating while a boy stood helpless in his suffering. And the result is a striking visual contrast between the glory of who Jesus is and the helpless suffering of life apart from Christ beneath. And the painting begs the question, how will the suffering helpless below find hope in this glorious Jesus who's pictured above? And I think that's a good bridge to this passage because I think it comes right at the question that Mark is addressing as well. The whole episode draws faith into the spotlight. And I think we can summarize the main point of this passage by saying that faith is the necessary instrument of God's work in our lives. Faith is the necessary instrument of God's work in our lives. Now, I want to walk through the story and see how it develops this point. So, let's start where any good story starts, with a problem. A good story starts with conflict or a problem, and this story does as well. You see it described in verses 14 through 18. Jesus, Peter, James, and John have been up on the mountain in the presence of the glory cloud of God, but as they come down the mountain, they immediately find the rest of the disciples in disarray. We aren't told what the issue is at first. We just get a picture of chaos. A great crowd had gathered. Invariably, the scribes are there, and they're front and center in a debate with the disciples. You notice that Jesus' arrival immediately draws all the attention. Here are the scribes and the disciples. They're having this dust up in this debate, and all of a sudden, Jesus shows up, and everyone's attention is on Jesus. It tells us that the people were amazed which is an expression of their surprise and delight that in the midst of this uh, argument and thing that's happening, Jesus would suddenly show up on the scene. Now, Jesus cuts right to the chase, and he asks, what are you arguing about with them? It's not immediately clear from the text whether he's saying that to the disciples, what are you arguing about with these scribes, or if he's talking to the scribes, what are you arguing about with my disciples? But before we can get an answer to that question, a man from the crowd 
pushes his way forward and tells us what is wrong. He says that he's brought his son to see Jesus because his son is an epileptic controlled by a demon. But in Jesus' absence, the disciples were not able to cast out the demon. You can't read these verses without immediately having compassion on this father. This father has suffered so much. His son has suffered so much. And he's watched his son suffer even as the demon would throw his son into fire and water to destroy him. And then this man came looking for Jesus. But instead of finding Jesus, he, he found the disciples who instead of pointing him to Jesus tried to solve the problem themselves. And in the face of his desperate need, the disciples could do nothing. And then this man and his son were pushed to the fringes of the crowd so that the scribes could take center scene as they debated with the disciples. But the problem all started with the disciples' weakness and inability to help. If you read this story carefully, you can tell it seems that the disciples assumed that they would be able to cast out the demon. It's clear from the action, their attempt, but also from their question later. Why couldn't we cast this out, Jesus? They, they thought they would have the ability to. And if you want to trace their thinking back, perhaps it would come from Mark chapter 6, where you'll remember that Jesus sent the disciples out two by two, and he gave them authority to heal and cast out demons. And so the disciples did go out and they cast out demons in Mark chapter 6. And so you, you might be able to imagine their thought process, well, we did it before, surely we'll be able to do it again. But in Mark chapter 6, Jesus had given them a specific commission and they went out in obedience to his command. And with him, they can do all things. Now the disciples are apart from Jesus and they appear to be acting on their own or at least out of their own strength. And without him, they can do nothing. Of course, is a good lesson for each of us. Just because we follow Christ doesn't mean we are automatically capable on our own of doing the things God calls us to do. Parenting our children, grieving, comforting the grieving, leading the lost to Christ, any, anything else, we are not capable on our own at all. Because what does Christ tell us? Apart from me, you can do nothing. And that seems to be the situation here, that with Jesus absent, a father and his son are less helpless on the sidelines of a debate between scribes and disciples. So that's the problem that we meet in our text. The question is, what's the root of that problem or the cause of that problem? And that's what I want to look at next. Why exactly is there no help for this father and his son? Well, Jesus immediately identifies the root of the problem. He identifies it in the people as a whole. He identifies it in the father and he identifies it in the disciples. And it's all the same root. The root of the problem is a lack of faith. We start in verse 19. When Jesus hears what happened, his first cry is, O faithless generation, that is, O generation without faith, how long am I to be with you? Jesus' concern here seems to be a general one addressing that generation, including the crowds, uh, the scribes, uh, perhaps also the disciples that are, are with them. Jesus' cry is an echo of the cry of God's heart throughout Scripture. And if you think back to Numbers chapter 14, for instance, you remember Numbers 14. That's where God had told 
his people to go into the promised land and the people had said, no, we can't beat the giants. And in response, the Lord says to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? Do you hear the same echo in Jesus' cry? How long will I be with you, O faithless generation? Fifteen hundred years separated God's cry in Numbers 14 and this cry here, but its focus is the same. Nevertheless, Despite the lack of faith in this generation, Jesus tells them to bring the boy to him. And immediately, the boy convulses at his feet. But before Jesus heals the boy, he asks the father about the situation. And the father explains the history that that this has been happening since childhood. And then the father begs Jesus to have compassion and to help them if he can. It's perhaps not surprising that the father would say, if you can, This has been going on throughout his whole life. And he brought the boy to the disciples and they had no luck in casting out the the demon. So we have some sympathy for his question. But Jesus, again, puts his finger on the same root of the problem. If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. The issue isn't the type of problem or how big it is. The issue is faith in Jesus as the Son of God. And so Jesus has looked at faithlessness in the generation. He highlights faith as the key issue with the Father. He does the same with the disciples later on. After this event is over, the disciples ask why they were so incapable of casting out this demon. And Jesus tells them again that the issue was a lack of faith. Mark focuses on prayer, and we'll talk about it in just a second. But in Matthew's recording of this episode... When the disciples ask, why could we not cast out this demon? Jesus responds, Matthew 17, you couldn't cast it out because of your little faith. Little faith. And so with each party, the people as a whole, the father of the boy and the disciples, Jesus declares that the root of the problem is a lack of faith. Now we use the word faith all the time in the church, so maybe it's worth just pausing briefly to remember what we are talking about when we talk about faith. The Westminster Shorter Catechism gave us a great definition that we read, talking about receiving and resting upon Jesus alone for salvation. But I think we could summarize the Bible's teaching about faith by saying it's the combination of believing the truth about who Jesus is and what he is capable of with a relying on him and entrusting ourselves to him. The combination of believing the truth about who Jesus is and what he is able to do as the Son of God, along with a relying on him and entrusting ourselves to his care. And the problem seems to be that we have here a generation and, uh, and a, f- a father who doubts that Jesus is God incapable of addressing the situation and a group of disciples who are tempted to think that they could solve the problem on their own rather than entrusting the situation to the care of Jesus. So we have a problem. We have a clear root of the problem and a lack of faith. But once again, Jesus doesn't leave his people in the problem. He presents a solution. And that's what I want to see thirdly. The solution Jesus holds out to the father and the disciples. When the boy's father begs for Jesus' help, if he can, Jesus responds, if you can, all things are possible to the one who believes. In other words, the solution, Jesus says, is faith in me. 
And the father seems to grasp the point immediately. He says, I believe. Help my unbelief. You'll notice if you've been following with us through Mark, and I realize we took a bit of a break, but just to remind us, this is just another indication of the fact that when Jesus works miracles, he is never interested in just working a miracle or just displaying his power. Jesus is always interested in drawing people to him in faith. Faith and his miracles are constantly connected through the entirety of the gospel of Mark. And we see the same here, that Jesus is drawing this father out into faith in him. Then, having heard the father's response, he command, Jesus commands the spirit to leave the boy, which it does, convulsing him and leaving him looking dead at their feet. But Jesus takes him by the hand and raises him up. And he arose. Just as, a, as an interesting note, I want you to, to, to just note the fact that all three Gospels that mention this event, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, seem to make it clear that the boy was not uh, dead, but that uh, he was uh, convulsed there and, and Jesus picks him up. And, but Mark uses two words for resurrection. Both verbs here are resurrection words used of Lazarus, the little girl that Jesus raised from the dead, and Jesus' own resurrection. And I think, I think that Mark is drawing our attention here to the fact that even if this boy was not literally physically dead, Jesus' work of redemption is a work of restoring life. This is a work of redeeming this boy who is enslaved and trapped and restoring life to him. Faith draws this father and his son to the redeeming power of Jesus who rescues us from our sin and slavery and gives us new life in him. And that truth is seen and represented in what happens here to this boy as he's set free and has life restored to him in Christ. But just as Jesus draws the father to faith in him, he also draws the disciples to faith in him. After the event is over, as so often happened, uh, Jesus and the disciples went back and had the debrief session in the house where they were staying. And of course, if you are involved in discipling or mentoring, you know that reviewing and debriefing after event is a huge part of that, and Jesus does that with his disciples. And they ask him, Jesus, why couldn't we cast out the demon? Mark records the part of Jesus' answer in which he says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, I think, as I read this, I don't think that Jesus was saying, some demons would have been no problem, you could have taken care of them on your own, and other demons you have to pray about. I don't think he was saying that. I think he's saying, this kind of situation that is beyond you, that is outside of you, requires prayer. Matthew records the other part of Jesus' answer about faith. He says, you could not cast it out because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, the smallest of seeds, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. I, I hope you know that these answers in Matthew and Mark are not at all contradictory. They very clearly fit together for what is prayer but the expression of faith, a practical expression of calling on the Lord in faith. And so Jesus' answers fit together here. They're not contradictory. And I think we could say that what Jesus is calling the disciples to, the solution to the problem, according to Jesus, is faith expressed through prayer. Faith expressed through prayer. 
Now, I need to pause for a minute to offer some clarification about Jesus' answer here. Not because Jesus is unclear, but because his words have been often misinterpreted with great damage to God's people. See, it is true that some people remain in pain and suffering and despair because they have no faith. In other words, in their doubt over God's goodness or power, they try without success to rely on their own resources and their own strength without at all looking to the Lord for help. And so they are left in their suffering. That is true. However, even as we say that God-given faith is the necessary instrument to God's work in our lives, that does not mean that the converse is true. What's the converse? You say, I got to dig back into my logical memory here. The converse would say, therefore, if I just have enough faith, I will get whatever I want if I pray for it. And that is not true. See, my guess is that a number of you sitting here this morning know believers who have been greatly damaged by people who have said to them, you are not being healed of your suffering. It must be because you don't have big enough faith. And these believers are racked with guilt because they don't receive healing. And they're told that it must mean that they don't have a good enough faith in Jesus. Or it may lead them to doubt God who doesn't seem to be coming through for them. And many are even accused by their other fellow believers of not being a Christian because they're not receiving the healing that they've prayed for. And this is a complete distortion of Jesus' words. See, all things are possible for the one who has faith and nothing will be impossible for you means that there is nothing outside of the power of God. There is no situation that is impossible because of its size if we are looking to the all-glorious, all-powerful God. Nothing's impossible for him. But that does not for a second indicate that if we have enough faith, we're in the driver's seat to request anything we want and get it. Just think practically. This father does not have more faith than Paul, who prayed that God would remove the thorn in his flesh, and God said no. It's not that the father had faith and Paul didn't. It was that the prayers of faith, God was clear, nothing was impossible, but they were given in submission to the will of God. Maybe we could put it this way. Faith is not a magic talisman to get our will, but is an expression of complete trust in the person and power of God through Jesus Christ in submission to his will. And so we have Jesus here. Well, he invites us to come to him because God so often delights to answer the prayers of his righteous ones with a yes, but at other times in his goodness, and in his sovereignty, will answer their prayers with a no because of his plan and his purposes that he is working out. So this is what Jesus calls the Father and his disciples to. He calls us to faith expressed through prayer, knowing that nothing is impossible for this God that we pray to. Though all our prayer through faith is expressed in dependence upon his will for us. Well, here we have a problem, we have the root of a problem, and we have a solution to the problem in faith expressed through prayer. But I want you to step back with me for a moment, if you would. Step back with me for a minute. If this summons to faith 
exercised through prayer is Jesus' call to us this morning. I think this begs two questions for us. The first question it begs of us is this. What will we do if we find ourselves in the same position as this father? We hear Jesus' call to faith and we think, Lord, I do believe, but I know my faith is weak, so help my unbelief. Does Scripture give us any instruction on how we can grow in our faith? And the answer is yes. But before I turn to that answer, I think we need to make sure that our expectations and our motivations are in the right place. So let's just briefly review this. Our expectations. We have to remember that the key to salvation is not the size of our faith or the unflappable assurance of our faith, but rather the object of our faith. An author that I read recently used this analogy. He said two people might be looking to fly on an airplane across the country. And one person might have absolute confidence in that plane and will hop on that plane without a second thought. And another person may have great doubts about the safety of flying and may wrestle, but decide they are going to trust that plane and they get on. Now, will there be any difference in whether the two get to their destination? The answer is no, because the object of their faith is the plane, and the plane will get both of them there, whether one is wrestling with doubts and the other one is not. In the same way, our focus always remains on Christ. It is Christ who saves through faith, not the strength of our faith that saves. And so we must remember Our expectation here is not trying to make sure we have a strong enough faith in order to be saved, but rather that our gaze is fixed on Christ. But we also need to watch out for our motivations. We can't be looking to increase our faith so we'll get more of our prayers answered the way we want them to be answered. You've heard that expressed that way. Lord, increase my faith and more of my prayers will be answered with a yes. But that's not the goal either. See, We desire to increase our faith because greater faith in the Lord honors the Lord as a suitable object for our faith. And it brings us into a sweeter assurance and peace in Him as we look to such a great Savior. So that's our motivation. That's our expectation. But supposing our hearts are in the right place, how do we grow in our faith? Well, Scripture gives us a very clear answer. And I wonder if you might even flip over in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, verse 20. See, in Romans chapter 4, you might remember that Paul is talking about Abraham. Paul's talking about Abraham and Abraham's faith or belief in the power of God. And as Paul talks about Abraham, he comes to verse 20. I want to just read Romans 4, 20 and 21 here where Paul writes, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. See, do you catch that answer there? How might we grow in our faith? Well, God tells us that Abraham grew strong in his faith by giving glory to God. What does that mean? 
I think it means that he contemplated God and his glory and his attributes. And as he worshipped God for his power and his character and all that he was, as he contemplated him as God, gave him glory as God for all that he is, he became convinced that if this God is so great and glorious, he is able to do what he's promised to do. And he will do it. And so Abraham grew strong in his faith. In his faith. You know, too often, the routine and the demands of life cause us to take our eyes off the God that is revealed to us in Scripture. And we spend our time distracted by the things of the world or looking at the size of the problem. We're, we're, we're like Peter who wants to walk on the water and takes his eyes off Jesus and starts panicking as he looks at the waves slapping against his shins. This is what we do, and, and yet we're called here I believe the more we study the character of God as the all-glorious one, the more we look to God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, the more we review how God has proven himself faithful to every promise he has made to his people, the more we will be strengthened in our faith as we will be convinced that God is able to do what he has promised to do and that he is faithful to his people and is able to sustain us in anything for nothing is impossible with him. And the Bishop J.C. Ryle adds this as a practical encouragement as he considers this. He says, what shall we do with our faith? We must use it. Weak, trembling, doubting, feeble as it may be, we must use it. For the exercise of our faith, our weak faith, will strengthen it as we look to the one upon whom we depend and see his character proved yet again. You know, we know how this works in our physical life. Bench pressing builds our muscles. Exercising makes us stronger. I think what Ryle is saying here is as we look to God and prove God by putting our faith in him, It will root us and build us up and strengthen our faith in such a Savior. So fellow believers, this is, I think, God's encouragement today. May we share the desire of this Father. I believe, help my unbelief. And may we look to grow in our faith by meditating on and giving glory to God and by exercising that faith, trusting Him that we might see His faithfulness in response. And we, like Abraham, will grow strong and our faith as we give glory to him. So that's the first question that's begs. There's a second question. The second question this passage begs is how we will approach prayer. See, Jesus here in Mark clearly connects faith with prayer. Mark, I think, uh, in Jesus' words that he relates here, seems to be indicating that prayer is a practical expression of a life of faith. If if we believe God, if our faith is in him, that will be expressed through prayer. Or another way to say it might be that prayer is a primary evidence of the state of our faith. But if that's the question, if prayer is a primary evidence of the state of our faith, maybe we should ask the question then, how is my life of prayer? What is prayer indicating about my life? And I'm afraid that for me and for most of us, it would immediately bring us to the realization that we have great growth we need to live a life of faith expressed through prayer as Christ would call us to. Why is that? 
Now, some of you were probably watching on national TV a few weeks ago when Buffalo Bill's safety, Damar Hamlin, collapsed on the field and required CPR. You know, injuries happen all the time in football, and I don't think I've ever heard a broadcaster pray about any of the injuries because we typically know how to handle them. We tape them up, we schedule surgery, we get them to physical therapy, and on we go, and who needs prayer? But when it became apparent that this injury was beyond those resources, the immediate response of the announcers was to talk about prayer. In fact, ESPN host Dan Orlovsky paused on live TV and prayed a beautiful prayer that's been viewed by millions of people. But why is that so rare? I think it's because most of the time we think we've got it under control. And it's only when we're reminded of how out of our control things are that we begin to think about prayer. But that's not just true of our culture. I think it's often true of us too. I mean, how many times do we default to relying upon our money or our resources or certain methods or our training? And I don't want to diminish methods or or training, but in Mark chapter 9, Jesus says this boy could only be healed by prayer. And the question is, what things would we put in that blank? The lost can only come to Christ through prayer. Missionaries and pastors will only be raised up through prayer. This this sin in my life can only be overcome through prayer. Our children can only be saved through prayer. We can multiply these situations, but how about other more practical ones? This conflict with my boss the situation in our extended family, the anxiety that I routinely feel. Do we think we've got the right expertise and resources to handle that? Or do we think prayer, faith expressed through prayer is our only hope? Now, let's just pause and remember what we said just a minute ago. It is not true that a prayer with enough faith guarantees the result we want. Right? Don't miscure that. But how many things do we approach in our own strength rather than bathing them in the prayer of faith? As I was preparing this week, I was remembering the comment of uh, a man I heard once, a man who didn't grow up in America. I don't remember his exact words, but they went something like this. Where I come from, extended prayer is the natural instinct and habit of God's people who know that he is their only hope. In America... That's not the case, even in the church. I guess it's because it's just too easy to assume that the abundance of our money and resources and expertise are sufficient to handle most things we encounter. It's quite an insightful comment, isn't it? So here's the question for us. Does my life match the weight that Jesus puts on prayer? Do I treasure prayer at this level? And if not... Might it be because our faith is too small and we are relying on ourselves too much? Brothers and sisters, self-reliance is the antithesis of faith. And distraction is often just a facade that shows how many other things we think are more important than trusting Christ for this thing in my life. So as we come to an end today, may we consider Christ May we consider him and give him glory, increasing in our faith as we behold him for who he is. And may abundant prayer be exercised in our lives in such a way that exalts our God and his glory and demonstrates again and again that he is faithful 
and worthy of all the trust that we would put in him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would be at work in our midst because we know that no human word can convict us of sin or draw us to yourself or bring about spiritual growth. Father, these things we long for can only be done through your spirit. And so I pray, Father, through faith in you, that you might be at work in us for your glory. I pray that you would capture our attention, that our minds might be fixed on you, that we might give glory to you and so grow strong in our faith in you. Father, I pray that you would draw us to yourself through this passage of your word this morning. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.